Thank you for listening to this episode of Pit Stop, which means this episode is about Formula One specifically. If you enjoy this content and want more F1, let us know on Twitter or Instagram at lunchpailguys underscore and subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. And it's lights out and away we go. This is Jared. I'm bringing you some Formula One content solo on the weekend before the Miami Grand Prix. If you've listened to the show before, you may know that Formula One and football are definitely the two sports that I enjoy watching and talking about the most. Looking at it, there's similarities between F1 and NFL that show why I like it and why it makes sense that I like both of them. There's the initial similarities where, for the most part, both the Grand Prix and F1 and the games in the NFL are centered around the weekend, which provides a really nice structure for a fan. And both sports have a very manageable amount of games and events to watch. Their 17-game regular season for the NFL and a 22-race season for F1. So the season calendar is very digestible and manageable from a fan's perspective. For example, I have little interest in the NBA's regular season, to be honest, because there's just too many games. And I have practically no interest in the MLB's regular season with 162. I'll watch the postseason for both, though. I think the real impressive thing, though, about the NFL is the parity found in the league. I think they're the gold standard in that regard. There's no clear favorites or super teams when you come into the start of a season. The Kansas City Chiefs were probably the closest thing to that, to a super team, with their stacked offense, and they've only won one title and have since been broken up, basically, with the Tyreek Hill trade. Formula One is is starting to adopt some rules that remind me of what the NFL does to ensure fairness and entertainment simultaneously. And there's three main ways that F1 is starting to look like the NFL that I want to focus on. For the NFL fans listening... Do you remember when there was a proposal where instead of an onside kick to get the ball back after a touchdown, you could run a 4th and 15 play to get the ball back? That's what's great about the NFL. Not That rule didn't get instituted, not that rule, but that they're willing to experiment. They're always willing to change the rules to make a more entertaining product in a way that is still fair. For example, they moved back the extra point to make it more difficult and encourage teams to go for two-point tries more often. They experimented with being able to challenge pass interference calls, which didn't work. But they, they tried. They tried the experiment. The point is they're willing to experiment and innovate. And F1 is is doing the same thing. And they, ju- they have done the same thing. The F1 and FIA powers that be wanted closer racing with these new regulations. And they delivered. Through four races, every team has scored a point, which is the earliest in a season that this has occurred. F1, you know, they now hold sprint races occasionally. And finally, because of these new regulations, we have an exciting sprint race at the front in Imola, which was awesome. Cars can follow now. On-track battles can be sustained across multiple laps, which we saw in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. In Bahrain, Leclerc and Max battled wheel-to-wheel for three laps, which I, as a newer fan, I had hardly seen before, a wheel-to-wheel battle that would sustain for that long. So number one, Both leagues are willing to experiment with the game rules in order to create a more entertaining product. That's a really good thing. 
now I actually I actually want to bring baseball into this to illustrate an important difference between how F1 used to operate and how it's going to start operating more like the NFL. The NFL, they have a hard salary cap. There's a set limit each year, and if teams exceed it, the NFL can void contracts, veto trades, fine the team, and even deduct draft picks, so on. In contrast, let's look at a league like the MLB, which has no salary cap. It has a competitive balance tax, which taxes rich teams when they spend above a certain limit. But in the MLB, you can you can outspend teams. And the Yankees and Dodgers, they regularly do. But you don't see the Yankees and Dodgers winning every year because the nature of baseball is unpredictable. The best player on your team, they may only get four at-bats. You can't have your best player bat every single time. And therefore, baseball is one of the worst sports in terms of measuring skill level. And it leaves a lot of room for luck. That's why they play 162 games, to try and minimize the effect of luck in the standings. But when it comes to the postseason, baseball again becomes essentially bad at measuring skill because the sample size shrinks down again to a best-of-seven series. In fact, there was a 2013 paper from the Harvard Sports Analysis, which starts, which sounds very smart, obviously, found that the MLB most consistently produces champions most disparate from their regular season performance. In other words, the MLB, the MLB produces the most undeserving champions. And since there's no postseason really in F1, every race is basically the postseason. Formula One results do not have the same unpredictability that a baseball game has meaning the sport does a better job at measuring the skill of a manufacturer and the skill of a driver than baseball does at measuring the skill of their players. Sure, you can have a crash with an unruly, unruly driver or an engine failure, but good drivers, they avoid the scraps over the course of the season. Good manufacturers, they make cars that are consistently quicker over one lap, and they make cars that are consistently quickest over 40 to 60 laps in a race. They make cars that don't break down. So F1 is a sport that is good at measuring the skill of each team and measuring who can make the best car. And over the last decade or so, the best car went to the teams that spend the most. I mean, that's how you make a good machine is you spend a lot of money. So all of, the, all of this is to say is that in Formula One, you can outspend other teams and buy wins in a way. And that's why an unlimited budget doesn't work in F1 where it would work in baseball because baseball doesn't measure skill that well. doesn't mean that the players aren't skilled. The game just doesn't measure the skill of their players that well. The cost cap, the cost cap therefore, is a step in the right direction. I mean, I don't watch European soccer leagues, but I always hear complaints about teams being able to just buy wins in that league. And that's not fun for anyone. The, the general sentiment is that the smaller teams in F1 had been operating at the same budget level that the cap is going to be set at for a while now, while basically Red Bull, Ferrari, and Mercedes will have to scale back to stay within the budget demands. And the way the way the cap works is the cap governs most things that relate to car performance. Um, capital expenditures are also monitored, so teams can't constantly upgrade their facilities. There are going to be exclusions, of course. Driver salaries are not part of the cost cap. The salaries of the three highest paid personnel are also exempt. That way teams can retain high profile engineers or strategists. Marketing costs are exempt. Team travel is exempt so that they don't cut costs on 
flying uh, their team and nice accommodations. Power unit developments as well, engine developments uh, are also excluded because smaller teams don't need to spend that money on developing their own engines. So it balances that part out, which the top teams do take more of a burden on. And finally, the good thing about the cost cap is it's part of the reason why Audi and Porsche right now are interested in entering F1 is because it's more sustainable financially. And more engine variety is great for competition, branding, popularity. So in short, F1's cost cap is now looking more similar to how the NFL uses a salary cap in a way to enforce parity. Finally, and this is my this is my favorite parallel, I'll ask you a question first. What is the most fundamental way that an American sports league tries to help struggling teams catch up? It just happened this week for the NFL. It's the draft. In the NFL, if you're the Jaguars and you go 2-15 or 0-17, the next year you get the first overall pick. And you won't see that change in the very next year, but that accumulation of talent, getting the first pick at the start of every round, means you're going to have better players compared. You should have better players comparatively, right? And we saw a turnaround in two years, right, with the Bengals, so it can't happen. What is F1's counterpart for the NFL draft? It's the wind tunnel and CFD time. The wind tunnel is basically where you put a model car on a conveyor belt in a tunnel. A big fan blows wind to simulate a car moving through air in real life. It's for it's to measure aerodynamics and how well your car does on that. With new regulations now, the worst team in the constructor standings get the most wind tunnel time, and the best team from the previous season gets the least wind tunnel time. And the same applies to the CFD time, which is computational fluid dynamics. I'm not going to get too much into it, but basically it's a virtual wind tunnel and they use computer-aided design models uh, of their F1 car to make small aerodynamic changes and see how that would affect um, how air moves through it. Like I said about NFL draft picks, like you're not going to see this change in one season, mostly. The Jaguars, they drafted Trevor Lawrence last year. They're still bad. F1's head of aerodynamics, Jason Somerville, echoed a pretty similar sentiment um, when talking about the wind tunnel regulations. He said, will it level the playing field over the course of a season? Probably not. But over the course of a few seasons, it's very unlikely you will not see a closing of the grid. And this is exactly how the draft works. I love it because it's not a free win. Like NFL teams still need to draft well. And F1 teams still need to efficiently use their extra wind tunnel time. But I think it's already worked. Like the two worst teams last year in Alfa Romeo and Haas are enjoying a nice little resurgence. They're actually in the fight. Ferrari are also enjoying an advantage over Red Bull and Mercedes by virtue of their really terrible 2020 campaign and third place last year while Red Red Bull and Mercedes were battling for the title. In summary... If we're looking at all of this together now, F1 looks more like the NFL in like three important ways. They're willing to experiment with the game's rules. Both leagues do that. They both have a hard budget cap now to prevent the buying of championships, essentially. And they both give the worst teams a boost to close the gap via either a high draft pick in the NFL or more wind tunnel and CFD time in F1. And the impressive part about F1's moves too is that F1 is a unique sport in that the tension between entertainment and innovation is much higher in F1 than sports that don't use machines, like football obviously does not use machines. 
In order to promote the interest of sporting fairness and entertainment, sometimes innovation may actually be lost. And make no mistake about it, like F1 is going to be for entertainment first. But in these new regulations, there were worries that the regulations were going to be too prescriptive. But the variety in car designs has shown that innovation and entertainment can coexist. And as a fan, I definitely hope that continues. And let's move on. I I want to just give a shout out to the veteran drivers on the grid. They've been super impressive this year. I think another to draw another NFL Formula One comparison, they're like veteran NFL quarterbacks. They can just play until they're 50 or race until they're 50. We're seeing now. I'm sure, I mean, I know Tom Brady probably wants to do that. Russell Wilson wants to do that. I'm sure Fernando Alonso wants to do that. Maybe Lewis wants to. Valtteri Bottas, all those guys. And what I've seen this year is that just the sheer like amount of reps in an F1 car can go a long way. I guess amount of laps, I should say, would be more the equivalent of reps. And like Formula 2 can only prepare you for F1 so much. Like, Let's look at Fernando Alonso last year, for example. He takes two seasons off from F1. He comes back and beats his younger teammate in Alcon, who's still very experienced. But Fernando Alonso, he takes two seasons off. And because of all the reps and laps he has, he can just get in that car and beat his teammate. Vettel last year. He seems washed at Ferrari. But last year bagged two podiums. I'm including the Hungry podium, yes. And he helped Aston Martin get back on track in Imola when he was side- after being sidelined with COVID and... He kind of needed Australia to be like a testing weekend in the way I thought. I mean, so if you look at last year, Lando and Max were the only less experienced drivers to beat their more experienced teammates. So experience means obvious it's going to win out. And you might say, well, these are, when you're talking about Vettel and Fernando Alonso, these are former multiple world time, multiple time world champions. But if you look at K-Mag and Bottas, it's still, I mean, it's, the trend still holds. And it's a great comparison, I think, because they're both going up against very fresh F1 drivers. So in K-Mag situation over at Haas, he spends a year outside of the sport, right? He returns instant P5 in Bahrain, and it show, that's, what, that's, what it, that's what lit me up to it. Is it shows the immense benefit of reps in an F1 car. Like even a new generation of cars, for crying out loud. And then at Imola, he saved the car from being beached in the gravel, when he accelerated a little bit just before he stopped sliding to get back onto some paved road over at the end of the course. That was really impressive as well. Look at Bottas. He's in an Alfa Romeo, and he's out-qualified Lewis Hamilton twice. They're 2-2 they're two and two in qualifying results right now. And when making a team transition or returning from the, the sport, it seems like veterans just don't lose a step. It's like riding a bike, it seems. All of, this, all of this is to say that it it makes Haas's decision to bring in K-Mag make much more sense now. When, when I first saw it, I was like, okay. It seemed like they might go with Grosjean because he had the IndyCar experience, but they go back with K-Mag and bringing in a veteran to really see how Mick is as a driver to see what you have in Mick um, is really smart. And it gives someone it gives Mick someone to learn from as well. Rather than bringing in a rookie to develop, not really a good comparison to see what you have in Schumacher either, and it makes total sense now. Well done, well done to Haas. I think a lot of American F1 fans, especially, like to see that, but a lot of F1 fans in general, uh, we're here for the Haas resurgence. 
But a veteran that is not doing too well is one of the greatest drivers of all time is Lewis Hamilton. And George Russell is really impressive. I mean, gosh, it just seems inevitable sometimes. I'm talking about the veterans. But if you look at a young shining star that already has F1 experience at a midfield team, and then they go over to one of the top three teams, they always seem to put pressure on the old veterans. At least since I've been watching. Whether it's Charles Leclerc in his first year at Ferrari against Vettel, Max pushing and then eventually passing Daniel Ricciardo and pushing him out of Red Bull, or George Russell now at Mercedes taking on one of the best of all time in Lewis Hamilton. And like I said, I'm not surprised by how well George is doing, despite skeptics like Lucas. I know he's going to be listening to this. He's doing an excellent job, what I'm impressed by, of just playing the long game and staying somewhat in contention until Mercedes unlocks some of the potential of that car and fixes their porpoising. And we know they need to figure out the porpoising. It's not just the engine, obviously, because we saw at Imola that Russell couldn't even catch Lando, who's in a McLaren, using a Mercedes engine. I mean, maybe we'll see. That'd be kind of cool if we see a Mercedes customer finishing higher than the works team. That would be cool in the championship. But again, I've said this last time we talked about F1. I'm more worried about the Mercedes team at the track than the team at the factory. I think the team at the factory has a really good track record. They'll be able to figure out that car probably. But the team at the track, they continue to make wrong strategy calls. They were too conservative. They pitted a lap too late for slicks with Lewis. That let Pierre Gasly undercut them. And then they were stuck behind Gasly all race, Lewis was. Their strategy team doesn't give me hope that if it becomes a close title fight, which it probably would based on their deficit already, that they'll out-strategize Ferrari and Red Bull. I don't think they will because now the car's performance can't cover up their mistakes. And I said that last time. I don't want to beat it too much, but I think it's interesting. And and, um, the other thing I think about that is interesting is George Russell. He gets so much press time. Is it just me? Every time I look up Formula One, it's a George Russell headline or a quote by him. Maybe, I don't know if because it's a British-focused sport or something, but I wonder if that will turn into pressure later on in the year. So that's something to keep an eye on. Another driver that is definitely putting some pressure on himself is Carlos Sainz right now over at Ferrari. I've said before, if you've listened to this, that Carlos is my favorite driver and the driver I'm rooting for the most this season. We've talked about him a lot on the podcast, I think seven times, maybe this eighth time by my count. And to be fair, I've been pretty harsh with him, actually. (laughs) But I want to see him succeed. I want to see him succeed. And we usually talk about F1 early in the season for some reason, which is when Carlos historically doesn't do that well. He kind of settles into the season a little bit. But he's already shown some really great flashes this year. I thought he was going to get his first pole maybe in Saudi Arabia, for example. Didn't end up happening. But um, he's shown some flashes, two second place, um, or two podiums, um, rather. And I think... Where it went wrong is obviously he had a bad qualifying in Australia that made him push too hard, and he beached himself in the gravel. Same, same, pretty much same exact story this weekend, this last weekend in Imola, and he's just pressing too much. And the key for Carlos is gonna be to stop focusing on the championship, I think, and even maybe operating, maybe from a mindset that. He's out of the title fight. At least don't put that pressure of the title fight on you because it's so early in the season to say that that chance is gone and you can't make up 48 points in one race. He needs to operate just by taking chunks out of Leclerc's lead 
and just running good races. That's that's the key for Carlos. Carlos, and I think the thing that's obviously going to be working in Carlos's favor and Leclerc's favor, obviously, is that Ferrari, the team, are now a well-oiled machine. This isn't the 2020 Ferrari team anymore. I mean, so think about it. Red Bull was the team that broke Mercedes' driver championship dominance. Why was it Red Bull and not Ferrari? It's because Red Bull, they nailed the pit stops. They always won the DHL fastest pit stop award. They signed a top-tier driver lineup with Max and Checo. They figured out their engine. And in all so in all respects, Red Bull is very polished in all facets, their media presence, everything. Look at Ferrari from the previous era. It's pre-Carlos signs, really. And they're like in their 2020 season, they were eighth place in the DHL fastest pit stop standings. Their engine customers were the two worst teams on the grid last year, for example. In 2020, Vettel would chastise the race engineers over the radio and he would be spinning out. It was just a mess. But I think it was the professional and calming influence of Carlos Sainz that changed some of the organizational mood around Ferrari. And, and many others have noted this too, but Sainz embodies the work hard and earn your keep, lunch pail guy mentality, if you will. Like now, Ferrari, they get the pit stops right. In 2021, they finished third in the, the fastest pit stop award across the season. Um, and this season, they're quicker than Mercedes now. And only McLaren and Red Bull are quicker and therefore ahead of them in the, the DHL fastest pit stop award standings. That's a mouthful. Their livery is awesome this year. Their engine customers have significantly improved. And that also makes Ferrari look good as well, obviously. So for Carlos, it's 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 operating without thinking about the championship, I think, a little bit. Hopefully, that's what we hope to see from, from Carlos. It's early in the season. Hopefully, we can make this a recurring segment. I like the idea of being a, a Carlos Sainz, having a Carlos Sainz uh, little fan segment and talking about his races um, and rooting for him collectively. Hopefully, you can chime in on that. If I need a good name for that this segment, though, if I do do that. Go ahead and suggest suggest some names to us on Twitter, Instagram at lunchpailguys underscore. And before I end and get into the conclusion, um, I'll just do a, a flying lap of a couple notes I had that didn't really warrant a full segment, right? They're just rapid fire takes. Um, first, why are F1 teams so greedy for one fastest lap point? I We saw that backfire on Ferrari this weekend. I know Leclerc was also trying to chase Perez for a second, but still... Like spinning, he spun out, and I wonder if Ferrari is going to learn from that. Like, at the end of the day, it's just one point. Just don't DNF. Like, stay safe, and that one point won't matter in the championship because you'll have such a big lead. I mean, Max has already DNF'd twice, right? Um, next, I'm not a fan of the helmet cam at all on the broadcast. I wonder if y'all are too. I mean, you can't see anything. Like, the helmet cam is fine for practice, but not good for the race. Please do not bring it out for the race. And I, it makes you, it definitely makes you appreciate how talented these F1 drivers are. But I want to watch the race. I want to see the overtaking. I don't, I don't want these helmet cams anymore on the race broadcast. Next, it's, it's practically guaranteed for Bottas to have a pit stop issue like every five races. It must be written in his contract at this point. Uh, even on the broadcast, Crofty noted that Bottas may have had a shot at the podium without that bad pit stop. So that's interesting. Lastly, um, I kind of touched on this a little bit with Haas, but there's definitely some pressure on Mick to start avoiding crashes and scoring some points. Like 
Now he and Latifi are the only drivers not to score points this season. And Haas kind of need him in the constructors fight. Like their start has been exciting, but they're eighth in the constructors right now. They definitely need Mick to start producing and hopefully get them a little higher in the constructors championship. So in conclusion, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed anything about this episode, please let me know on Twitter or Instagram at lunchpailguys underscore. On Twitter, uh, we'll also post the schedule for episodes, and that way you'll get a heads up when the next F1 content is scheduled to release. Our regular episodes of the other sports, essentially our Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can support us by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and subscribe on whichever platform you listen on. Keep tuning in, and uh, we'll have some more F1 content for you. Appreciate it.